Until Brad West and I are best buds, I'm not moving to that area. <laughs> not a fan of Brad West? No, I said until we're best buds. Oh, until you're best Like, you're like, we're going to be best friends. I'm going to move there. We're going to hang out all the time. Yeah, yeah. Play but I have to make sure we're, he's committed. <laughs> <laughs> you want him committed to you like he's committed to opposing China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't just move out there on a whim because we got along once. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of Canada's most prominent criminal defense and impaired driving lawyers, thanks to her high-profile string of success in courts and tribunals. She is renowned for her knowledge of the Immediate Roadside Prohibitions, IRP, and in 2014, she was the first lawyer to explain the deficiencies of the IRP scheme to the judges at the Supreme Court. She obtained her law degree at the University of British Columbia. She is a member of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, the Canadian Bar Association, and the founder of the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association. Currently, she works as a lawyer for Acumen Law Corporation. She was named one of Canadian Lawyer Magazine's top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. She's appeared on Global BC, The Linda Steele Show, CBC News, CTV, and a variety of other outlets seeking her criminal law expertise. But today she's here, the tough, the outspoken, and the beautiful. It's true, she used to be a model. She is Kyla Lee. Kyla, how's it going? That's good. I'm very embarrassed now. <laughs> that was quite the intro. Thank you. I was I was creeping that LinkedIn. Yeah, okay. Yeah, dug deep. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for a while because you're always so succinct and knowledgeable when you're in the media, and I feel like I learn a lot, and I just want to learn even more. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Right off the bat, I want to ask you something, and I promise this is in good faith, as will the rest of this chat be, but it's something that... I'm very curious about it. And I'm sure it's something that you hear from trolls a lot. Mm -hmm. The idea that you make your living from defending people who drink and drive might make people feel uncomfortable. And I'm not here to question your character or your values, but I wonder, does the gravity of what you defend and who you defend in terms of these drunk and impaired drivers who presumably put people at risk, does that ever weigh down on you? Not really, no. Um, I know it should. I know, like, I'm supposed to say, yeah, you know, it's really hard to defend people who got drunk and then made the decision to get behind the wheel and potentially killed someone or injured someone or mm -hmm. just caused an accident. But at the end of the day, I don't, like, I, I compartmentalize it all. And I don't view my job as being the role of putting the drunk driver back on the road. I view my job as being the role of ensuring that the police conducted the investigation correctly, mm -hmm. that all of the proper scientific uh, protocols were followed in taking the breath or the blood samples from my client, and that if there were any missteps along the way, that that's brought to the attention of the court, that that's brought to the attention of the officer through cross-examination, and that, you know, whether things were done correctly is sorted out so that only the people who are supposed to be convicted through a proper process are and that you know if there wasn't something done correctly my job is to defend them mm -hmm. you know so i try not to let it get me down <laughs> <laughs> 
and I understand that, but I feel like there are going to be people who respond to that and they say, well, you have no personal experience with impaired drivers or maybe even losing loved ones to impaired driving. And even philosophically or conceptually, they might understand that, yes, everyone is entitled to a fair process in criminal proceedings. But there are going to be people who are like, you're literally the devil's advocate, and it must be because of a lack of morals or sensitivities to these issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, people don't just call me the devil's advocate. They call me the devil. (laughs) Um, Is Is the devil a lawyer? I would assume yes. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know my Judeo-Christian mythology, so. Uh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you think about like the story, he he kind of rebelled against the rules and said this process isn't fair, and I reject it. So mm. yeah, I suppose he could have been a lawyer. Sure. Not a very good one because he lost. But <laughs> he lost big time. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you subscribe to the principles of the Church of Satan, he won big time. Right. So, sure. You know. Yeah. Whatever. But what would you say to people like that? <laughs> I guess. I would say, uh, you know, y'all don't know me. Um, and I've been through a lot. Like, my family's been through things. When I was in high school, um, there was a serious car accident that involved uh, some of my friends and some of my classmates. Hmm. Um, people were very badly injured. Uh, one student was killed. And my dad was the principal of my high school at the time. So, I saw a, a completely different side than most people see. You know, lots of people have experienced the trauma of losing somebody that they care about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know the student that was killed. I did know the students that were injured. Um, I knew I was friends with the student who had hosted the party where things had precipitated. Hmm. Um, but what I saw was the enormous impact that this had professionally on my dad. Um, it was constant calls from media to our home telephone number, asking him all hours of the day and night for comment. Right. Um, you know, all of this discussion. He had to deal with these grieving parents, grieving students, and all of that. You know, as the principal of the school, the buck stopped with him. Mm-hmm. And so, it was actually a huge source of stress for me and for my family at that time. And we, even though we weren't impacted in the sense that we didn't lose somebody, we did feel an impact from it. And yeah, so, of course. You know, it's 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 a different thing. I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, all of the collateral damage that comes with impaired driving cases and the people that aren't even directly involved that are ultimately affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, you know, it is something that I went through that was really hard on me to watch to watch my dad go through that, to experience it at our house. Mm-hmm. And then I've had family members, not people I was close to, um, but family members. We did have someone in our family who was uh, was badly injured and his wife was killed by an impaired driver. So I've seen, again, my family members, the people that were closer to these people um, affected by this. And I myself have been in three car accidents in a very short time span. One of them I strongly suspect one of the drivers was impaired by drugs. Uh, can, can't prove it. Was never charged. Doesn't mm. matter. But I was um, very badly injured as a result of those collisions collectively. I have a permanent back injury now. Hmm. Um, I had a brain injury. I'm not as smart as I used to be. <laughs> I Still pretty say smart. That. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, um, you know, I, I noticed like a, a, a significant impact on sure. my cognitive abilities as a result of head injuries. And so that, you know, I've experienced what it's like to go through car accidents and collisions and the consequences of that. So I can to that extent, I can put myself in 
the position that those people are in through my own experiences. And I think a lot of people just assume, oh, you're a lawyer, so you're not human, so you haven't lived this. <laughs> you wouldn't do what you did if you'd ever had anything bad happen to you in a car. But that's yeah. not true. Yeah. You know? So you can confirm you are human. I am human, okay, yes. Just wanted if you to make cut sure. me, I will bleed. It's very good programming. <laughs> I, well, I appreciate, and, and sorry to undercut the seriousness of what you were saying, I actually do appreciate the the frankness and the you being candid about that. Do you feel that those personal experiences affect your professional life at all, or were those personal experiences more compartmentalized away from your professional Compar life? I compartmentalize it. And, okay. you know, a lot of people have the ability to do that. You know, you see people working like in the medical profession mm -hmm. who can compartmentalize the crazy shit that they got to see yeah. when they're working. My sister is a uh, is a nurse and, you know, she worked in uh, like like end of life type care for people. Mm. She's, you know, compartmentalized that. My mom was a nurse. And, you know, I, I compartmentalize stuff when it comes to when it comes to work as well. It's just, you know, I have that ability. Not everybody does. Sure. Not not everybody's going to defend impaired drivers. Not everybody's going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody wants to. I'm sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Can we get into uh, brass tacks here? Yeah. I learned from you okay. that I can fail a breathalyzer from drinking kombucha. You can. Now I drink the booch. Every day. Why? <laughs> so are you telling me that I'm a traffic stop away from fucking up my life? What's going on? You are potentially, yeah. If you So in British Columbia, the way the law works is if you blow into a roadside breathalyzer mm -hmm. and you get a failed reading, then you're going to be 90 days off the road, 30-day car impound. you got to pay for that. $500 fine, $250 license reinstatement fee, wow. mandatory alcohol counseling and education course. <laughs> like, so about, you know, $4,000 in consequences, which, you know, I don't know very many people who can afford to just shell out four grand. Yeah. Um, and you can get a failed reading from drinking kombucha. So if you're sitting in your car drinking kombucha because you're insane and you think it tastes good, um, no It's offense. the elixir of life. Oh, God, Excuse so me, ma'am. I do not like it. I do not. Um, and you blow into the breathalyzer within 15 minutes, you could get a positive reading and then face all those consequences. So there wouldn't be any recourse to say, hey, I have not been drinking. I literally just went to Whole Foods and picked up a booch, a kombucha, and I'm drinking it on the ride home. And it's 10 a.m. Yeah, I mean, there is recourse in there are two options available to you. Option one, you're entitled to ask for a second test. But if your second test is done within 15 minutes as well of when you had the kombucha, because there's no obligation on police to wait hmm. and say, OK, we're going to wait before doing your second test, then you're screwed on the second test. Right. Um, and your other option is to dispute the prohibition. But if you dispute it, you have to pay 200 bucks to the government mm -hmm. for the privilege of having a, a review hearing. The burden is on you to prove that you were sober and that it was caused by kombucha. So you'd have to get some type of expert evidence because you can't just go and be like, well, I drank kombucha. You have to actually get expert evidence to show that there's alcohol in kombucha yeah. and a sufficient quantity of it to produce a false reading. Then if you persuade the adjudicator, you're still off the road for 21 days because yeah. that's how long it takes for the decision. So no matter what, if you get a false positive due to kombucha, yeah, you fucked up your life. This is really serious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic, but maybe I could cut back on the booch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're drinking like 45 of them a day, you could be over 80 based on how many you drank. 
That would be I'm, a serious... I'm drinking one a day. Okay. Let's not get too serious here. <laughs> On a more serious note, though, when it comes to drinking and driving, we have new federal drinking and driving laws that came into effect this past December. Very briefly, can you explain to me and someone who does not know what these changes are, what what are the big changes here? I had lots of changes, but the biggest one is that now the police can uh, stop any driver at random for the purposes of conducting a sobriety test and make you blow into a roadside breathalyzer, no questions asked. So hmm. it used to be that they had to have a reasonable suspicion that you had alcohol in your body. So they smell it on your breath or you had to admit consuming alcohol or constellation of other factors. You know, you've seen people who've been drinking. You can mm-hmm. tell something to lead them to conclude there's alcohol in your body on the basis of a suspicion. Now the law says, stop you, test you. That's it. They don't have to have any suspicion, no grounds whatsoever. So completely warrantless, groundless search. Hmm. That's one of the big changes. The other one that's crazy is that they've now criminalized drinking after driving. So it the law now says that if your blood alcohol level exceeds, is at or eight, over 80 milligrams of alcohol, 100 milliliters of blood, or 0.08, right. um, that if that's at that level within two hours after you ceased to operate or have care and control of a motor vehicle, then you are breaking the law. Interesting. Yeah. So if you drive home, you pour yourself a couple glasses of wine and you drink them within two hours of being uh, in your vehicle and parking in your driveway, you've committed a crime, technically. Right. Okay. So let's go through these two things because these sound like real big changes. Mm -hmm. My first question is, at traffic stops or road checks, I should say, they also needed suspicion to have you pull over and, and conduct a breathalyzer, or could they just... So the the rules on traffic stops haven't changed. Okay. Um, it's like since the 1970s, the Supreme Court of Canada has said, you can stop as a police officer any vehicle mm-hmm. for the purposes of checking sobriety, licensing, fitness, or insurance. Okay. The difference is that what happens once you're stopped. So they can stop you to check your sobriety and knock on your window and go, hey, Mo, did you have anything to drink tonight? No, sir. Okay, on your way. That that was always fine. Mm-hmm. But now if you say no, sir, instead of saying, okay, on your way, they can say, I'm just going to confirm that. Let's take a test. Interesting. Okay. So th- I can see the counter argument being, well, if you're not drinking and driving, it's not a big deal. So why is it problematic that these mandatory alcohol screenings can happen without any suspicion. Lots of reasons. The kombucha thing that we just talked about is a good example. <laughs> right. You wouldn't be drinking and driving, but you'd be at risk of being punished by the state or arrested, subjected to the further searches for further breast samples, mm-hmm. all because of what happened there. And when you take away the obligation on police officers to form grounds to ask you to blow, mm-hmm. what you're taking away is the process that actually ensures the results are reliable. So ordinarily, if they're conversing with you, they'd ask you, when did you finish your last drink? And if you say, two hours ago, then okay, yeah, you've probably got alcohol in your body. If you say five minutes ago, they go, we got to wait to take your test because you've had something recently. Right. And so now they're not asking those questions. They're not ensuring the reliability of the process, which means more people are going to be punished because procedures that are ordinarily taking place aren't being followed. So that's one of the reasons why it's so important. The other is this is the first intrusion we've seen ever in Canadian law of the state's power to search and to compel you to participate in a criminal process whereby evidence is generated against you Mm -hmm. without any authority for it whatsoever. 
Like getting you to stop your vehicle doesn't compel you to participate in a process, but providing a sample of your breath, giving a, a, a sample of breath into a machine that then generates a reading, that's giving evidence about yourself, what your blood alcohol level potentially is or right. the range in which it is. Um, and that, to me, that's starting us out for a lot more intrusion mm -hmm. into our civil liberties. You know, they justify this by saying, well, lots of people are dying because of impaired drivers and mm -hmm. it's really bad and, you know, we don't want people to die. Well, we also don't want people to die because of fentanyl overdoses. So now are we going to say if police want to knock on your door and make sure you're not trafficking fentanyl, they can just come to your house to do that? Because sure, yeah. a person a day is dying in British Columbia? <laughs> like, I mean, it's not that much of a stretch to see the government taking this one step further and justifying it on the basis of saving lives. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Now let's go to this two-hour breathalyzer rule. And, and I think you said you're driving, and then up to two hours afterwards, they can still breathalyze you, right? Yeah, and if you're over, you are committing an offense. So, again, hypothetical situation. Let's put away the kombucha. Let's talk about actual alcohol. I can drive, park my car with the full intent of leaving my car overnight in a parking lot. Yep. And I'm, I'm at a bar, let's say. And the cops can come and breathalyze me at the bar, even though I have not driven my car while intoxicated. Yep. I have that intent to leave it there. It's, it's, I can leave the car there. How? <laughs> How is that? What's the logic behind that rule? See, the logic that the government had behind this rule was they were concerned about situations where people were in accidents or they were being pursued mm -hmm. by police or pursued by civilians or there was some report of impaired driving. And they didn't like the very incredibly rare cases where people knew they were going to be in trouble. So what they did was they rushed home or rushed to a bar or like went to some dude's house that they caused an accident in front of and started drinking, pounding back right. the drinks. There was a case then, of that police officer, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But they already had a legal mechanism to do that. And that, that case of that police officer is a perfectly good example because Monty Robinson, mm -hmm. um, same officer who was involved in the Jajansky case and ultimately convicted of perjury for that. Right. So we're not talking about a good guy, by the way. <laughs> um, Monty Robinson, who was charged with that, was charged with obstruction because the the Crown took the view that he knew full well what he was doing, mm -hmm. that he was trying to prevent the police officers who were investigating him from getting evidence of his blood alcohol. And let's level. just rewind it back. So this police officer got in an accident, and according to him, I believe he went home, drank mm -hmm. a bunch, drank a bunch, and that's why he was intoxicated when they yeah, came to see him. Yeah, I think right? he actually showed up back at the accident scene with like a bottle in hand, being like, "Ha ha ha!" Oh, really? Can't get me now. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. He was super brazen about it. Huh. Okay. But if the Crown can establish that somebody did that for the purposes of obstructing the investigation, mm -hmm. there's a whole criminal process available to me, charge him with obstruction, and the consequences can be way more severe mm -hmm. than, like, an impaired driving charge. And, you know, it's a, an offense against the administration of justice. It's mm -hmm. very terrible. Um, so they didn't need this law. Um, right. And instead of offering, like, uh, writing the law in a way that limited it to those circumstances where somebody was fleeing the scene of an accident or in fresh pursuit by police or civilians suspecting them of impaired driving, mm -hmm. which would be a perfectly reasonable way to limit the law, they deliberately left it overbroad. 
And I know it's deliberate. I know you're thinking, Kylie, you're cynical, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm very cynical, so I'm like on okay. board with this train. Let's, there, there yeah, is, let's, there let's is go a, all the way with it. There's a reported judgment in which I'm found to be cynical, so um, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> the uh, They left it this way, and I know they did because this summer they tweeted it. They, the government of Canada put out a tweet. It had a lovely little like graphic of a dude pulling up to a garden party with a six-pack of beer and walking into the yard. And they said, whether you're going to a backyard barbecue or a pool party, remember that it's against the law to be at or over 80 within two hours after driving. What? Yeah. And then they tried to walk it back because like, literally all of law Twitter jumped on it and was like, yo, you said this wasn't how you were going to use the law. Yeah. What? the fuck are you doing and they deleted their tweet which was stupid because you never know you know you know what happens when you delete a tweet yeah. it comes back to haunt you yeah. it's like the strize effect, effect. Yeah. yeah absolutely um so- i guess why didn't they make the law with some sort of prerequisite that you know if you are involved in an accident or if you know there's a sure. police incident or whatever yeah then yes there's that two-hour rule but without anything preceding it it just sounds like they can breathalyze you while you're sitting in a bar or you're at home yep. or someone else's home. Yep. And they, they, they claim that they offered drivers an out because they created this exception to the law where you can testify, mm-hmm. but you have to testify. You have to provide evidence to show three things. Okay. And they're an impossible burden. The first thing you have to show is that you had no reasonable expectation that you were going to be given a breath test. But given the fact that the government has already come out and tweeted you can be tested. We're watching you. Don't go to a pool party. Yeah. Um, how can you say you had no reasonable expectation? The second thing you have to prove is that the alcohol that you consumed was consumed after you ceased to operate a motor vehicle and that what you drank after you stopped driving and before you tested was consistent with the results obtained on the breathalyzer test. So you have to basically call an expert witness to say that uh, 172 pounds, uh, a male consuming four 16-ounce beers over a time span of 90 minutes would have achieved a blood alcohol concentration of this, which is consistent with the breathalyzer reading. Right. You have to hire a lab, basically. You, you have to hire a lab. So you not only do you have to give up your right to silence, in the investigation and you have you're compelled to testify mm-hmm. something that ordinarily we don't see in Canadian law you're never compelled to testify um, not only are you compelled to testify but you're also compelled to go to a significant expense to prove your defense yeah and they could have just done it exactly like you said the easy way write it into the law that it's for these circumstances because mm-hmm. that's the evil they're trying to address yeah is this Trudeau's fault this is Jody Wilson-Raybould's fault. Oh, yes. I don't blame Trudeau. Uh, I'm not like I'm not a huge fan of Justin Trudeau. It's probably clear from my Twitter. Um, and you know, the whole blackface, brownface thing sure. also made it worse for me. <laughs> it's like really don't like you now. But um, I thought that Jody Wilson-Raybould as Justice Minister was terrible, like absolutely terrible. Hmm. And we had a lot of bad justice ministers under the Conservatives. So mm. you know. But she passed laws that didn't pass under the conservatives that the people tried to introduce under the conservatives. And hmm. yet she pushed them through. Hmm. And she, you know, uh, assisted dying, didn't do a good job of that. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that she was supposed to do. So I'm not a fan. Yep. Fair enough. Are these laws for drinking and driving, which clearly seem like they're an overreach, are they being challenged now in court? Yes. Are yes. you challenging them? Yes. Are you actually? <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'm involved in a challenge in Yukon to the random testing. I'm working with a lawyer there on one. 
Um, I have also filed a challenge in BC Supreme Court uh, here in, um, I filed it in Vancouver, but it's being heard in the Victoria Registry because it's joined with another challenge by a lawyer there, Jen Taren. Okay. Um, if you heard the case of Norma McLeod, the, the elderly woman who was stopped and randomly asked to blow and she like doesn't drink right. and couldn't, yeah. couldn't blow. Yeah, yeah. So Jen Taren's representing her and I'm representing somebody else who was also sort of screwed around with under the law, hmm. in my view. And that's uh, being case managed and dealt with right now. And then I've also filed a challenge to the saliva testing for drugs in Nova Scotia. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So. So you're <laughs> you're very much deep into this, yeah, clearly. Across Canada. <laughs> One of the the big accomplishments of the Trudeau government was the legalization of cannabis. Mm-hmm. So let's move away from the kombucha and the alcohol and we'll we'll move on to cannabis. And I feel like this opens up all new issues mm-hmm. in terms of impairment and breathalyzers. When marijuana was legal, Did the federal government set standards for marijuana impairment when driving and roadside checks and everything else that they've already established with drinking and driving? Yes. They they, did? Yeah. This was was how they got all these crappy changes to alcohol impaired driving (laughs) law in. They said, oh, my God, cannabis is going to be legalized and we're going to have utter chaos and everybody's going to die because drug impaired drivers are going to be everywhere. We've we've seen since legalization that that never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of reasons for it. Uh, So... They created this new legal regime and two things that they're doing that are significant. One is with the cannabis, they're creating a level. So kind of like you have a blood alcohol level, we have a THC blood drug concentration level. Okay. So uh, basically two to five nanograms, you're committing a summary offense. So like the equivalent, you probably you are more familiar with the term misdemeanor. Okay. It's kind of like that. Um, and then uh, five nanograms and up is, uh, is a hybrid offense. So it can either be prosecuted summarily or by indictment. So misdemeanor or felony, right. if you want to use the American lingo that most people know from TV. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're dumbing it down for me and maybe some other people, too. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> but if, if you know what a nanogram is... No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine two cubes of sugar okay. in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. That's Whoa. how much THC they say is illegal. And, like, I have not consumed Olympic swimming pool water, but I'm pretty sure if you put two cubes of sugar in there, you can't taste it. Sure, yeah. So, you know, it's it's a very, very small amount of THC in your bloodstream. And you know how we've kind of set the standard of like, if you're out for dinner, you can have, you know, a beer. Mm-hmm. Is there something equivalent when we're talking about marijuana consumption? No. And the reason for that is that it totally depends on your body, your brain, your tolerance, like mm-hmm. people, unlike alcohol, where you can be as tolerant to alcohol as you can get, or you can be as naive to alcohol, your blood alcohol level is not going to change significantly. How fast you eliminate it is, but um, like your peak level based on consumption is not going to change that much. You're going to okay. have, you know, it's based on your weight and your amount of fatty tissue and a couple mm-hmm. other factors that are that are biological. With cannabis, it's different. And the science doesn't even completely understand how you get to a particular blood THC concentration. Oh, really? We don't yeah. know, We don't even know. We, we know some of it. Um, like we know the method of ingestion is very important. So if you smoke mm-hmm. um, cannabis, you'll have really high spikes in the blood THC concentration. What's interesting is 
the period where you're most impaired or affected by it mm-hmm. is not when your blood THC concentration is highest. So the, oh. the most impairing effects will be fe- felt about 15 to 40 minutes after you've smoked. Hmm. But your THC levels actually spike about an hour later. So you're seeing higher THC levels hmm. after the impairment is worn off. If you eat it, and edibles are where people are going to run into real trouble. When we legalize those, we're going to see more, I think, more impaired driving incidents. Mm -hmm. If you eat it, you have very low THC levels, like in the two to five nanogram range. But really? more significant impacts felt on the body. Like, right. I mean, that's they, what they I've heard, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know what it's like to consume any cannabis in edible format. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you hear these stories about people getting yeah. in trouble because they have, you know, an edible and then nothing, they don't feel anything. Nothing happens. And then an hour later, they have another one. And then two hours later, they're in another planet. They're, yep. And it's so hard to regulate, too, with the edibles unless you're getting, like, a packaged, um, you know, specific concentration. It's hard to regulate how much you're getting. Like, if you have one of those drinks, have you ever had those? No. No, never. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Someone I'm friends with uh, once had one. Um, No. (laughs) I'm not actually familiar with the drinks, though, I'll be honest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a dinner once in California. I don't remember much of the dinner. Okay. (laughs) I remember it took a long time. (laughs) But you're saying in the impairment of edibles, blood THC level doesn't isn't significantly high. No, no. You'll see like a very low level for a long period of time. Wow. Yeah. So two nanograms worth or higher than that? Like two to five. Really? Normal. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So you wouldn't you can't equate the number with impairment. It's more physiological than that. Could there be a situation where. You fail one of what, what's it called? A marijuana breathalyzer? Mar- it's a saliva tester. A saliva tester. Yeah. So could you fail one of these tests when your intake was yesterday? Yes. Really? It, yeah, because THC, unlike alcohol, where you know it goes through you and it eliminates and it's on a you know really nice curve that looks mostly like a parabola. Mm-hmm. Um, with THC, it stores in your fat cells. So if you have somebody who is overweight, who smokes a lot of pot, yeah. they can actually, and they've, they've done studies on this, they can actually see spikes in THC level months after they've last consumed it. And they did this. There was a prison in British Columbia that yeah. used to allow the prisoners to smoke pot. Okay. And then they closed that prison and they transferred them to, I think it was Matsqui Institution. Yeah. And they monitored their blood THC levels out of curiosity because they no longer had access to weed. And they found that people were all over the place, even for months after. They were still, as their fat cells were breaking down, releasing the THC into their bloodstream and having an elevated blood THC concentration. Fascinating. Yeah. That's scary, though. Yeah. I mean, if you go like really hard, you got a month off work, you're like, sweet, I'm going to spend a month being stoned. (laughs) Vacation in your own apartment. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're going to worry the next month when you're driving back to work and you're completely sober. Yeah. What about the rules for testing 
marijuana impairment? Can the police, without suspicion, or do they have to have suspicion they to have, test you? They have to have suspicion, which is the part that like boggles my mind. For marijuana, most. but not yeah. for drinking. Yeah. So okay. we're so scared that drug impaired drivers are going to kill us all that we need to create these new laws and approve new devices and right. you know ignore the science for now. But then we we leave the reasonable suspicion that you have a drug in your body standard in the law. So you have one sort of set of rights that people have if they're driving and they've consumed drugs Mm -hmm. and a completely different set of rights or the absence of rights if you're driving and maybe you've consumed some alcohol or maybe you haven't. Yeah. Like, why is there one charter of rights for drug users and one not for them? That makes no sense to me. Yeah. It's very confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not following the the logic of when they were, were drafting these rules. It's because it's not logical. It was reactionary rather than hmm. and they heard, you know, I went to uh, to Parliament. I testified as an expert witness at the House of Commons on okay. the bill. I testified as an expert witness at the, at the Senate on the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, the Senate actually voted in favor of removing certain things that I'm still critical of, which Parliament was then like, fuck you, no, and put them back in. Um, like, literally, Jody Wilson-Raybould came out and said, no, random breath testing is the centerpiece of this bill. And I was like, what about drugs? Like, I thought this was all to deal with drugs, but apparently not. Is that why you guys have beef now? Yeah, that's why we have beef. Also, I like I wrote this thing for the Huffington Post where I said she did a terrible job, and apparently I hurt her feelings. So I think she's got beef with me. Too. This is confirmed? Yeah, she said it at like the they somebody asked her about it when she was testifying on that SNC thing. Oh no! They were like, "What do you think of these pieces that say that you were a bad justice minister?" And I was like, "Oh, that was fine." Wow. <laughs> okay. And she's like, "They hurt my feelings." I was like, "Oh, I feel so bad. I didn't mean to hurt her feelings. I thought if you're in politics, like you could have, you have a, a thick, thick skin. skin, right?" Yeah. People say I do a bad job all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel yeah. like if you're just in the public sphere, you're gonna get. Yeah, you know, criticism. People are going to knock you. Unnecessary trolling and whatever else. In the in the immortal words of Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get up again. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I want to bring us back to the issue at hand. No, 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 that was my fault. I I I kind of I heard beef and I um, had to go down that angle. (laughs) So the marijuana saliva testers they Mm -hmm. use saliva, whereas with alcohol you're using breath. Yes. What's the reasoning behind the difference there? Like, is they haven't perfected a THC breathalyzer yet? Okay. There's a race. People are trying to do it because it's a lot easier and a lot less invasive. Yeah. Um, and courts are sort of more willing to accept breath as being not something you have privacy interest in because we all got to breathe, whereas we don't all got to spit on the street. And I would hope that nobody ever does. But... And I guess from the angle of DNA collection or. Yes, Something like and that. this is fascinating. So we did, we have the Drager Drug Test 5000, the first device that was approved, and we did a weekend of testing where we brought mm. people in, we got them high. We <laughs> In your law office? Uh, in our uh, in our up-and-coming distillery. Okay, <laughs> right. We have, a, we have an education space above where we do like CLE events, and so we did it all there. Um, so we gave them uh, cannabis, or we didn't give them cannabis. We had yeah. blind testing by a drug recognition uh, expert who tested everybody at the beginning and after they'd smoked or not smoked to look for a baseline and then to try and determine whether they were impaired. Mm-hmm. We took urine samples from everybody, which um, a scientist has very nicely agreed to test for us for free. 
And we took saliva samples and we mm -hmm. got positive readings from lots of people for THC. We had people who had deliberately abstained, heavy users of marijuana that, that deliberately abstained for weeks leading up to the testing just to wow. be part of this experiment. And they were testing positive, which really? is crazy. Yeah. Um, so that worries Just from me. the saliva test. Just from the saliva test. But then we took all the saliva samples yeah. and we sent them to a lab um, where they test for DNA. And they tested them. We collected them the first weekend of May, and mm -hmm. it was like the third, the second weekend in September. The 23 and meet them? Uh, we didn't 23 and meet them. We just looked for the presence of DNA. We were not creating genetic profiles. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Just wanted to clarify. No, yeah. And they were all anonymized first, so we sure. had no, yeah. you know, no connection to anybody. Yeah. Um, but we tested them just to see whether or not the DNA remained on the saliva tester and so you're maybe yeah. june july august like four months later mm -hmm. there was still enough dna on every single saliva sample to create if we had wanted a full genetic profile for each sample yeah. four months later and this is something that can't happen on a breathalyzer no because okay. you blow in it uh it takes uh less than uh what is it two uh 10 millionths or I don't know it's like a, a super tiny amount of breath that is actually analyzed on the roadside breath okay and then it's gone it's gone forever it oxidizes on a fuel cell right so it evaporates right I'm worried because yeah. everything that you're describing now makes it sound like we're heading for a police state yep <laughs> I mean people call me crazy because I say we're heading for a police state with this but if you actually look at the law that they've drafted that they passed mm -hmm. um, and the way that it can be used mm -hmm. we're headed that way yeah. and I mean we currently we have a liberal government and I like to think that the liberal government isn't going to do things police statey mm -hmm. but we have you know one very extreme right party that's you know part of the election right now we mm -hmm. have one very right party <laughs> that's, uh that's also part of the election and i don't know like you know you give you give the police all of these powers and you give the government all access to all of this and you put the wrong government in power and they're going to use it yeah yeah that's scary mm -hmm. i want to go back to this idea of there being different rights for drinkers and different rights for cannabis users yep what about other illicit drugs? Like, what if you're on mushrooms or MDMA <laughs> or another illicit drug? Is there a way that a police officer can determine if you're impaired? Yes-ish. Okay. <laughs> There's always an ish. Um, <laughs> so they, they can also do something called standardized field sobriety tests. So the saliva testers are only going to be testing in Canada for THC and cocaine. Mm -hmm. um, they can do a series of three tests, one that tests for horizontal gaze nystagmus, so involuntary jerking of your eye. Oh. Yep. That'll apparently tell you whether you're on drugs. Also could tell you you have any number of eye conditions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or have had a concussion ever. Huh. Um, then they do a test where you have to stand on one leg for 30 seconds and don't fall over or put your leg down or sway or use your arms to balance. Um, and then they do a test where you walk on an imaginary line and you have to do, perf do perfectly this weird, crazy turn that like I can't do ever. I've, I'm trained and certified in how to do the tests and I cannot do the imaginary turn. 
So it sounds like it's setting you up for failure. It, they are designed to set you up for failure. And the, <laughs> the people who created these tests, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in yeah. the U.S. invented these tests. And they said these tests are you know, 90% accurate at determining alcohol impairment. They're really great for alcohol impairment. That's what they said that they were were for. When they were developing them, they were trying to develop a series of tests that could be used to look for drug impairment. Mm -hmm. And they ultimately determined these three tests not useful for that purpose. But in Canada, I guess we like to ignore science. So we've concluded that these don't work. They don't work. The scientific <laughs> information about using these three tests for drugs is that they don't work. Yeah. But in Canada, we're like, yeah, it's fine. If you can't stand on one leg, you're probably on drugs. Wow. Yeah. But I feel like there would be people who could be on a lot of drugs and still stand on one leg or oh, yeah. still walk in a straight line. I don't know about this turn that you're describing. It sounds like it's difficult, well, even when you're sober. I, I can say that uh, I have performed the tests uh, sober, <laughs> yeah. and I have also re-performed them after ingesting some cannabis. Okay. And... I did them worse when I was sober. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like at the, I don't know, like maybe I just mellowed out and I was like not thinking so much about the turn. Yeah. I did it right. I don't know. But yeah, so I did them better. I mean, th that's me though. Like I kind of know the tricks, so mm -hmm. it's not entirely fair. Um, but then if you fail those tests, they take you back to the police station and then they do something called the drug recognition evaluation, which okay. is crazy. It's 12 steps that are designed to determine whether or not you're impaired what class or category of drugs is impairing you and whether or not your impairment is caused by a medical condition. Hmm. So they like uh, they put you in a dark room and they poke and prod you. They check your skin for injection sites. They look to see if you have a green tongue because, you know, that means you're smoking pot. Um, is that actually a thing? No, it's not a thing. It's just a made up thing that <laughs> the police uh, the, the police. But use. they still do it? <laughs> yeah. The only time you get a green tongue from ingesting cannabis is if you're eating like a cannabis candy yeah. that is green. <laughs> Which you would get from eating a regular candy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's, that's what they do. This is bizarre. Okay. Yeah. And it looks for seven uh, classes or categories of drugs. But the thing that cracks me up the most about it is some of the classes or categories of drugs, you would not want to do those tests on people. One of them is to look for PCP. Like angel dust. I am not. Like if I was a police officer, if I was anybody, if I was Superman, I would not want to take a dude who's hopped up on PCP, stick him in a dark room, and then without any warning, flash some lights in his eyes to see what he, his pupils did. Like that's going to get you hurt. Yeah. yeah. Scary. Yeah. You know how I know if someone is impaired? How? If they elongate the word man. <laughs> like, hey, man. <laughs> Take it easy, man. <laughs> Whatever, man. Yeah. That's when you know someone's fucked up. That's yeah. That's a good sign for sure. <laughs> they we're should just, put that in the police manual. That's just, better than the green tongue thing. Yeah. Or ask them like, what was the saddest thing that happened to you in your childhood? Ooh. And if they start to tell you, they're on some heavy shit. Yeah. Wow. That is that's that's a good one. <laughs> Okay, I want some general legal advice. And I want to be very clear. I do not drink and drive. I take a cab because I do not want to mess around with breathalyzers or anything like that, even if I have a couple of drinks. If someone is pulled over or they're at a road check and it's determined that they're impaired, what should they do? Call a lawyer. 
That's it? Yeah, I mean, once you... There's no, there's no secret word to, to no. help them out? Man, you know, if I had a, like, a magic passcode that could get people out of impaired driving charges, I would uh, have a lot of money yeah. and not have to do a lot of work. <laughs> i just sell the passcode. I heard, though, that you can ask them when was the last time that the machine has been calibrated. And if they can't give you an answer, no, that's no, not I'm shaking my head here. No, no. If, whatever you've heard is wrong. Okay. Um, once you've provided, you can't have a lawyer before you do the roadside test. So the right. standardized field sobriety test, the saliva test, or the roadside breathalyzer, no lawyer before that. Mm-hmm. After that, I want to talk to a lawyer. And then don't say anything else. Hmm. Don't say anything is the best legal advice I can give anybody in those situations. Because if the officer asks you, when did you have your last drink? And you say four hours ago, and then you want to turn around later on and be like, actually, it was two minutes earlier and my tests were falsely elevated because I'd recently consumed alcohol. Hmm. You're not going to be believed because you lied. If they say, when was your last drink? And you say, and this is the only magic phrase that uh, I will I will give away. Uh, lawyer told me not to talk to you. This is a trademark phrase. The trademark is owned by Paul Doroshenko of our firm. Uh, I'm, I'm using it without uh, without paying him, but sure. that's okay. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use it, it. Yeah, giving it. Lawyer told me not to talk to you. So you should say that after you got tested or before you got tested? Before. The only information you have to give police and the only information you ever should give police, name, address, registered owner of the vehicle and their address, hmm. and uh, produce your license and insurance. That's it. If you tell anything else to the police, I'll be mad at you. (laughs) But if you tell them, if you answer their question, Mm -hmm. and let's just say you had a beer at dinner, and you go, I had a beer at dinner, I probably finished around 7 o'clock, and it's 8.30 now. If you use your answer, Mm -hmm. the lawyer told me not to tell you, wouldn't that create more suspicion? And I know they don't need suspicion or whatever, but... No. Aren't you being antagonistic at that point? No. No, it doesn't bother the police. They actually, usually, in my experience, when people are adamant that my lawyer said not to talk to you, lawyer Mm -hmm. told me not to talk to you, when people say that, they don't know what to do because they're trained on what to do when people just aren't talking, when they're not answering at all, when they're not communicative. That's a sign of impairment. He's so out of it that he's not able to answer my questions. They're trained on what to do when people say too much, you know, keep them talking, get more information, make more observations of their speech pattern and what they're saying and and get admissions from them. They're trained on what to do if you're combative or an asshole. Right. But what they don't have any tools to deal with is lawyer told me not to talk to you. There's nothing that they can hmm. do. If as long as you maintain that, they can't get around it. I'll be honest, and I appreciate the advice. But as a person of color, I would be very hesitant to sure. say that. Just to show because it sounds like sass to me. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is something I do not get involved with when talking to law enforcement. No, but I mean, you can be polite about it. I think you're right that, you know, as a person of color, you are in a vulnerable position vis-a-vis police. And Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, lots of very good reason for feeling that way. Um, Thank you, police, for creating a hostile society. (laughs) Um, Not all police officers, but, you know. Generally, you got, um, you got some more beef to unload. I got lots of beef. I got <laughs> lots of beef. I, you know, um, we had the Supreme Court of Canada in the Lee case earlier this year, being like, "Yeah, police when they deal with people of color do not deal with them fairly. This right. is a fact." Yeah, and you know, so but um, 
in in my experience, police have never reacted negatively to somebody saying that. I've only had one case where a police officer said something negative about my client for basically saying my lawyer told me not to talk to you. And that case did not go very far. Hmm. It was actually very embarrassing for the officer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Can you say that in any circumstance? Um, or are we only talking about driving? I mean, you can say it in any circumstance. There are some other circumstances where you might be compelled to give some information. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, as long as you identify yourself, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to provide any other information to police. You don't have to say where you've come from and where you're going. And Okay. You know. So outside of the motor vehicle, if you're outside, you do have to identify yourself to a cop if they ask you. Yes and no. Depends on the situation. <laughs> I mean, Why is the law so complicated? Come on. Yeah, Just give me some good, cut and dry yeah, rules. Right? It's like the, the classic lawyer answer. What, ask a lawyer any question and the answer is always, it depends. Right. Um, I mean, no. I mean, police cannot just randomly check people's IDs on the street and like engage in carding. That's not right. That's, in, in my opinion, unconstitutional. Do they do it? Yes. Hmm. Do most people comply? Yes. Is there anything wrong with producing your ID when the police ask for it, other than that you're perpetuating this like system of uh, police abuses of power that's by and large used against people of color? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no. <laughs> sure. But do you want to play into that? No. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if I were walking down the street and an officer asked me for ID, I would probably produce it because I'd want to avoid the confrontation Mm -hmm, and because they might be investigating something like they might have a reason for asking yeah but beyond that i wouldn't say anything Hmm. going back to the motor vehicle you're in your car let's say you are impaired you're basically saying that you should seek legal advice every time at once that you're at the point of arrest yes seek legal advice it's free they they are required to provide you with a telephone number 1-800 number Mm -hmm. contact a lawyer 24 7 for free legal advice right in that moment. I mean, they take you back to the police station and put you in a private room to do it, but they're required to do that. So it doesn't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. And lots of law firms, myself included, and I really hope I'm not opening myself up to hundreds of calls in the middle of the night now, but will answer the phone. Like private lawyers will answer the phone and give legal advice. If you find yourself in the custody of police for an impaired driving investigation, it's three o'clock in the morning, ask to call me. I will answer the phone. I will sound very tired, but I will give you the advice you need. (laughs) I need to get your phone number in case I get caught up in this kombucha thing. Yeah. You'll get get a call from me at 10 a.m. She's like, Kyla, it happened. The nightmare scenario happened. (laughs) This has been amazing. I'm, I'm still reeling about how much I've learned and how much I've realized we're at risk. Mm Mm-hmm. And how much I feel like it sounds like there's a lot of overreach in terms of policing in this country. I felt like, I mean, obviously, when this law, the new laws about drinking and driving came into effect in December of last year, December 18th, 2018, Mm -hmm. I felt different. Like I left my house that morning and I felt less safe than I did the day before. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm a woman walking in alone in Vancouver, so I'm never feeling entirely safe. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, I felt less safe than the day before. Yeah. And, like, for me, it was palpable. The the difference in how I drove and in how I perceived the presence of police officers on the street, and that's 
me and I know a lot of police officers Mm -hmm. and I don't drink. So like, I'm not concerned if I got a random test that I'd blow over and I know how to blow into the device because I own it and I'm still scared. Hmm. So, you know, I guess like it sounds like bad, (laughs) bad thing to say, but be scared. You're on the front lines of this thing. Mm -hmm. Has the culture in the last year changed that much? Because I'm hearing from what you're saying in terms of the laws being changed. I'm starting to get worried, but I do wonder, on the ground, have things changed? Are we seeing more overreach from the police in terms of them exercising what they can do under these new laws? Yes. Um, There are parameters that were put in place for when they can use the new laws and how they can use them. And Mm -hmm. there's just not been compliance, in my experience, with those with those parameters. So we are seeing a lot of overreach Mm -hmm. and a lot of circumstances where police aren't administering the law properly, which is frustrating and depressing. Yeah. Um, The other interesting thing that I saw is initially like in December and, you know, with counterattack and all that stuff that happens in December, it's always a busy, very busy time of year for me professionally. It was slower <laughs> this Christmas season than it was the the previous years. People were because there was so much media attention to the new law coming in. People were changing their tune. But right. by the time we got back to summer after, you know, it had been eight months, six, eight months, (laughs) people forgot. Exactly. And so it was busier than ever this summer, more work, like almost more work than we could handle. Um, and that, I mean, you know, professionally I'm like, sweet, (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've got job security right now. Um, but if the point of changing the law was to decrease impaired driving, it ain't working. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very worried. Sorry. I'm sorry. I've made you depressed. <laughs> I'll be following up with you. But if people want to hear more from you, hear more about you, read more about you, where should they go? Uh, so they could check out uh, my firm's website, which is VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Or I have my own website with my own blog, KylaLee.ca. Um, and it's an active blog. I was on there and I was yeah. like, oh, these are sometimes you go to professional blogs and then you know it's like it hasn't one been post updated. every three months yeah. no 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 there's at least one a week because mm-hmm. uh, i do a, a wednesday post with some crazy legal stories every wednesday okay um and then you can also uh listen to the driving law podcast which is every friday uh there's a new episode and we always talk about current developments in anything related to driving in the law mm-hmm. and there's a video series yes it's called Cases That Should Have Gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't. So it should explain what it's about. <laughs> Very literal, both yep. the podcast and the, the video yep. series. I like to be literal. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. I had a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for teaching me all about impairment. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, she is one of Canada's most influential lawyers and one of the leading experts when it comes to impaired driving laws immediate roadside prohibitions, and criminal law. She is Kyla Lee. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.